0: The Apostles' Creed is the summary of Christian faith. It outlines the beliefs fundamental to the practising Christian and has been the subject of some dispute during the course of history. Viewed superficially, the Creed may appear to be an archaic remnant of an unenlightened age, an age of military struggles and patriarchal ignorance. But is this really so? I'm not so sure. After several years meditating upon the wisdom contained within it, I am left with a profound respect for what it means and what it is, a priceless jewel for those who have the eyes to see. The form of the Apostles' Creed is a series of affirmations, of which the first leads one into the contemplation of the most elevated of human concepts, by which I mean God a subject that has been a focal point of human speculation since the dawn of time. Yet how little we seem to have learnt, or understood, indeed, how great still is the mystery. There follows, in a necessarily preceded form, part of my meditation upon the Apostles' Creed. It's not finished, and, in all honesty, I doubt if it ever will be. I accept it as a summary of my faith, for in part I know of what it speaks. Before the beginning, before the universe began, there was no thing, no space, no time. No dimension, no activity, no existence, nothing other than a complete, undivided, self-contained unity. An absolute better known to humanity as God, which is not to say that God is nothing, rather it is the recognition and acceptance of the absolute nature of God being totally incomprehensible to the human mind of which any description is quite impossible, because it is by definition beyond the powers of the created to comprehend that which lies beyond the parameters of creation. Qualitative definitions, such as eternal, infinite and absolute, being merely extensions of human thought and experience, applied to that unknowable essence which humanity calls God. Because this is so, those schooled in the wisdom of the Kabbalah define that which precedes creation as negative existence and that which constitutes creation as positive existence, one compared with the other in a relationship that is inevitably determined according to human thought and speculation. It is therefore necessary to understand that the term positive and negative must not be considered in ethical or scientific terms, by which is meant in the sense of right and wrong or in a manner that leads one to think of electrical polarisation, for example, but only as a relationship between two fundamental states. Nor is negative existence to be thought of as chaos, for chaos, particularly in its common usage, is by definition the antithesis of order, not its precursor, and as such both the terms chaos and order are relative to creation only. Kabbalistic philosophy informs us, how that which precedes creation is composed of three successive states, or to put it another way, one nature expressing itself in three progressive modes, thus Ein, the boundless, Ein Sof, infinity, and Ein Sofer, infinite light. It is further taught that Ein Sofer formed within itself the first point or seed of positive existence. Thus Ein Sofer, which is infinite, and all-encompassing, generated creation not outside of itself, for well, that is by definition impossible, but within itself. A notion that can be better understood by comparing Ain Sofer to a circle whose circumference is boundless and whose centre is everywhere, within the centre of which precipitated or formed the first point of creation containing all things that have been, and are, and are yet to be, in potential. The first point is known to the student of the Kabbalah by the name of Keta. Keta is the title by which the first expression of the Divine Will as positive existence is known. It is unity itself, and as such is incomparable, or there is nothing to compare it with. It is the source of all things, the very wellspring of life and existence, ever the source, ever the focal point of life itself, because it is life itself. It is the first point, the first cause, and as such is the antecedent of duality and all that duality might imply. It is therefore not definable within the parameters of space, energy and time. Thus it is without form, and consequently incorporeal. It is beyond time, and is therefore transcendent of generation and gender, and being transcendent of energy it cannot be thought of in terms of force or motion. It is taught that from Keta emerges the entire creation, past, present and future, and that in creation it is invisibly present in all things and all creatures as a substrate of divine life which is infinite, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, changeless and perfect. Other cultures have recognised and interpreted this same issue in their own way. Hindu philosophy teaches that the ultimate reality can never be defined or expressed, that it is the basis of existence itself, that it is the ever unknowable, totally beyond the comprehension of humanity, because it is absolute and undifferentiated. It is taught that this unknowable absolute, called by the Hindu philosopher Brahman, generated within itself the creative principle, Brahma, from which all creation issues. It is said of Brahman, and I quote, Now I shall describe that which is to be known, in order that its knower may gain immortality, that Brahman is beginningless, transcendent, eternal. He is said to be equally beyond what is and what is not. End quote from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 13. And of Brahma it is taught, and I quote, He, Brahman, desiring, seeking to produce various creatures from his own body, first created the waters and deposited in them a seed. This seed became a golden egg, resplendent as the sun, in which he himself was born as Brahma, the progenitor of all the worlds. End quote from Manu Dharma Shastra chapters 1-4 to Chinese religion, as practiced today, is a synthesis of Taoist, confusion, and Buddhist thought. To the Chinese, the idea of the unknowable God is beautifully summed up in the Tao Te Ching, a work of deep spiritual understanding written in the 6th century BC by Lao Tzu, one of China's greatest spiritual masters. Tao, it is taught, is ineffable, inaudible, intangible, and invisible. It is the unmanifested and absolute One, the Supreme God, Chapter 4 of the Tauti King states, How unfathomable is Tao, an infinite depth, the source of all that is, the ancient progenitor before all things. The civilization of ancient Egypt lasted for such a long time that several religious doctrines developed and succeeded each other during the course of its long history. Alas, the Egypt I speak of is no more, but it is generally accepted that its religion was polytheistic. Yet there are many references to be found in ancient Egyptian texts to the unknowable creator existing before anything else, hidden to gods and humanity alike. In the fifth book of the Divine Paimanda, a work attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, the Greek translation of the Egyptian god Tahuth, it states, But he that is one, that is not made or generated, is also unapparent and unmanifest. The Divine Pymander is without doubt ancient. How old it truly is may never be known. Some believe it to be composed as late as the 2nd century AD. Others think it was composed centuries earlier, but not put into writing until the 2nd century. However, most seem to agree that it does embody something of the essence of ancient Egyptian religious and mystical philosophy. Returning then to the Kabbalistic scheme, it is taught that the first expression of Keter is Abba, the supernal Father, the Father Almighty, of which the beginning of the Gospel of John states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Ama, the supernal mother, the creator of heaven and earth, of whom it is said in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, When he established the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the faces of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the seas its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman. United together, these two natures form Elohim, the creative dynamic of the divine. Thus the beginning of Genesis commences, in the beginning Elohim created the heaven and the earth. By this may be understood that the divine Father-Mother created heaven, pure spirit, and earth, pure undifferentiated matter. The book of Genesis continues to define the act of creation specifically as the work of Jehovah Elohim, a divine chemistry of spirit and matter, culminating in the creation of man. One may be forgiven for thinking that this man refers to mortal man, but this is a grave error, for the man referred to is the archetypal man, the microposopus, of whom it is said, So God, Elohim, created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 A cosmic being better known to us as the Logos, or the Son of God, created yet unmanifest, formed yet incorporeal, essentially the Logos is the creation. The first chapter of Genesis outlines creation in its archetypal form, which is unknowable through our normal sensory channels. It is only in the second chapter that the concrete and physical world is described, and even that is only in relation to the archetypal world. We are taught that the Logos took human form as Jesus Christ, which is to say that the most perfect expression of the divine, manifest in a way perceptible and understandable to human nature, concerning which the Gospel of John states, And the Word, Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to him, and cried, This was he of whom I said, You who comes after me ranks before me. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Quoted from John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. Therefore, when I say I believe in God, I am stating that I recognize the absolute and perfect nature of that which willed creation into being. I am affirming life itself, though I may not understand the full implications of its coming into existence. That I recognize all creation, by which I mean all life, as a common source, a common purpose, and a common goal. That its source... Is sentient in the most transcendent manner conceivable, that its purpose is a sane, noble, and perfect expression of divine love, that its goal is the complete expression of the divine potential contained within it. This leads me to the acceptance of the imperative respect for all life forms, because they are just as much an expression of God as I am. When I say the Father Almighty, I affirm in my limited understanding the positive expression of the will to be, of the absolute unknowable nature of God. And when I say the creator of heaven and earth, I equally affirm in my limited understanding the negative expression of the will to be, of that same absolute and unknowable nature of God. That the positive nature is the paternal principle, and that the negative nature is the maternal principle, both of which are reflected in the chemistry of being that is fundamental to creation. These three are one and indivisible. It is only in our discursive thought processes that we perceive them to be otherwise. Thus I can say unto God, in unison with all created things, O Thou Holy One, Thou Godhead Divine, Thou art my Father and my Mother, Thee, Thee, Thee I adore. When I say, and in His only Son Jesus Christ, I recognise and accept the quintessence That is the Logos, life itself, born of the chemistry of love, that exists between the transcendental masculine and feminine principles of the Godhead. This is the divine nature of whom it is said, no one comes to the Father except through me. All religions have taught of the Logos manifesting in human form to assist humanity in transcending its mundane nature. The specious arguments that abound, concerning the frequency and nature of this occurrence, only go to prove the universal acceptance of this significant event. However, whether we recognise the Logos in the form of Krishna or Buddha or the Christ, the fact remains that the fundamental reality wherein all of the answers to human existence can be found can only be realised through the recognition of and union with the Logos which is known to the Christians as the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. That the Logos is perceived as a reflection of the masculine principle is perhaps difficult for many to understand, especially when it is recognised to be transcendent of gender. Yet those who passed on this teaching were far more enlightened than modern-day critics give them credit for. Chauvinism was far from their minds, They understood the Logos to be the positive expression of the Divine Godhead. A full expression of the principle of unity in diversity, the light which lighteth the life of every man that cometh into the world, which is given form through the agency of the negative or feminine principle of the Divine Godhead. Pure nous manifest through the power of pure spirit. It must ever be borne in mind that these two are essentially one that they are an expression of the one undifferentiated Godhead. But human consciousness, by its very nature and conditioning, thinks in dualistic terms, and is therefore continually deluded by the diverse and manifold forms that manifest themselves within humanity's field of sensory experience. Imperceivable through the normal channels of cognition, the sublime chemistry that takes place between the positive masculine and negative feminine dynamics of the Godhead is summarised in the words conceived by the Holy Ghost, by which it is to be understood that the will of the unknowable Godhead is made manifest as the word or divine reason, via the agency of the power of the Godhead, that is, the Holy Ghost, which refers to the feminine principle of the Godhead. To put it another way, the masculine principle may be thought of as the architect and the feminine principle may be thought of as the builder, both of which fulfil the will of the Creator. But this is only an analogy, for we must again remember that these two are indeed one with the Creator and essentially transcendent of the mundane world. The Logos is the knowable expression and manifestation of the unknowable Godhead, born of the chemistry of these two principles and is defined in Christian terms as the Son of God but this does not mean that it is male or that it is female. It is important to recognise that the dynamics of the Transcendent Trinity are fully expressed in the very nature and substance of the Logos. Consequently, all three aspects of the Godhead are perceivable within creation. However, this does not mean that they are immediately accessible to the human mind, which at this point in its evolution is still dominated by the chemistry of mundane existence. In human terms, the soul is understood to be feminine in its relationship with the Logos. Or to put it another way, the soul of humanity is the Bride of Christ, which is made perfect only when it unites in consciousness with the Christ or Logos. This relationship is reflected in each individual when the soul realises the ephemeral nature of the mundane world and turns to seek refuge in a permanent reality, which is knowledge of and conscious union with the ever-present life-essence, that is the Logos, known to the contemplative as the indwelling Christ or Atman, the golden effulgent one, a spark of divine life residing within the heart, transcendent of all duality. Here we must draw to a close part one of the Apostles' Creed, to be continued at a later date. Thank you.